Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Today's reading comes from Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. Thanks, Lane. Well, good morning, friends. Thank you. I'm, uh, I, I see some new faces in the room, folks I haven't had a chance to meet yet. So my name is John Odom. I'm the pastor of the church, and I'm grateful that you're here. It's good to be together this first Sunday of the season of Advent. Uh, I stepped out of our office building, which, uh, if you don't know, is just right over there. It's that big, white, windowless building. Uh, we, we're on top of each other over here, so we moved next door. I stepped out of the office building at like 5.30 a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I was, walk, I was expecting as I walk out like at lunchtime to be blinded by the sun and I walked out and it felt like it was the middle of the night and it was like, oh no, it's happened again. It's so early, there goes playing in the street with the kids, there goes joy and happiness in life. The, the building, we, we, it's, it's great, it's worked out great, it's an office building, but it's windowless, so not only do we know, not know what time of day it is, we don't know what time of year it is, what season it is. It's a little challenging to walk out in the middle of this. I don't know why I'm surprised every year when the seasons change and it's dark so much earlier, but every time it comes, it's just a shock to our system like, oh, we really are going to do that again. Okay, we're committed to this plan. How depressing. Here, here. But there's actually a bit of a sweetness to the loss of light as well. There's a consolation that for many of us draws us actually back out into the dark. And I don't know if your practice is like our family practice, but the consolation of the dark is Christmas lights. And uh, Christmas lights are so fun. You know, it's, it's like 6.30 and you're done eating dinner and, and at least in our house we've got a little bit of time before the day is going to come to an end and kids are restless and they need to get out their wiggles and you think, what are we going to do? We're going to strap them into their seats and drive around and look at Christmas lights. Uh, and it's really fun. We have some, some favorite music that we listen to. We generally oscillate between the two Muppet Christmas movie, the two Muppet Christmas albums. So there's the John Denver one, which is a little more chill. And then there's the Muppet Christmas Carol. We have some others we can uh, recommend as well. But it's fun to drive around. I can tell you where some of the best lights are in town if you want to hear it. Uh, but what's fun about this season is not just the decorative lights, but there are actually some functional forms of light, like, uh, like using your fireplace or lighting candles. Some of you do that in the season of Advent. You uh, use candles at your table, perhaps instead of, of the, uh, uh, the, the regular lights. 
And there's something very homey and nostalgic and warm about, about the light in this season of darkness that literally provides warmth but an alternate form of light. And, and, and what's fascinating to me is that it's precisely the dark, which, you know, for some of, some of us, like, causes seasonal affective disorder, but it's precisely the dark that sets the stage for the thing that we can love, the thing that can make us feel like the season is still blessed, uh, and that's, that's the light. The dark showcases the light. And it's in a season of literal darkness that the church, which interprets the world through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ, reflects on not only the literal darkness, but the, the moral darkness and the emotional, and the relational, and the spiritual darkness of our world as it is right now. This is from John chapter 3. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Living in the dark for so long, many of us have made our home in the dark. Instead of looking for the light, we hide from the light. The catechism of our church uh, teaches these principles. The, the first question is, what is the human condition? And it says, though created good and made for fellowship with our Creator, humanity has been cut off from God by what? By self-centered rebellion against Him, leading to lawless living, guilt, shame, death, and the fear of judgment. This is the state of sin. We were created well. We were created with fellowship with our Creator, but, there's been, but we've been cut off. There's a distance. There's a gap, and it's a result of our self-centered rebellion. When the self is at the center of our universe, it results in lawless living, living without a North Star, guilt, shame, death, the fear of being judged. It asks the question, how does sin affect you? It says, sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, and myself. Apart from Christ, I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. This is a, the, the same vision of John three nineteen of living in the dark. As a result of sin, there's alienation, not only between us and God, between us and each other. There's even alienation, estrangement with myself, and even mysteriously with creation itself. There's alienation. Ask the question, what is the way of death? The way of death is a life without God's love and Holy Spirit. The people who are, who are walking around planet Earth, who don't know in the core of their being that they were made and loved by their Creator, are walking in the way of death. The way of death is a life without God's love and Holy Spirit, a life that's controlled by things that cannot bring us eternal joy, leading only to darkness, misery, and eternal condemnation. And in the season of the darkness, as we think about the darkness writ large in our world, we realize it's not just an out there thing, like a DC thing or a Hollywood thing or like the digital Babylon of the internet kind of thing. But the darkness is an in here thing too. The darkness exists on our streets and it exists in our homes and it also exists in our hearts. And despite our call as the people of God to be salty in the world so we stand out, to be like a city shining on the hill, the darkness also exists in our local churches. You think about abuses that have gone on in our churches. Some of you have, have been victims of that. 
Think about the idea of when narcissism is present in the church and there are people who make it all about them instead of being submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You think about missional drift or theological drift within the church, we realize the darkness is here too. And we can discover in this season of sober reflection what, like the rest of the world already knows about us, that though we are saved, we Christians still need saving. We still need to be transformed. We still need to live into the ideals and the call of Christ. And so Advent for us, the season of dark and light, as Advent, as Tish Harrison Warson says in her book by the same name, gives us a gift. Advent asks us, it offers us the chance to name what's dark in the world and in our own lives and to invite the light of Christ into each shadowy corner. We kind of take for granted the fact that we celebrate Christmas or that some of us observe the season of Advent. Christmas was being really widely celebrated uh, by probably the second century, as far as we can tell from our earliest sources, Um, and it was known as the Feast of the Incarnation. And I think, how cool would it be if we rebranded Christmas or like, like go back to the original branding of Christmas to being the Feast of the Incarnation? And we were talking about this with the staff this week, and someone said, wouldn't that be cool to kind of celebrate the social holiday of Christmas as it is, although I hate to give up that word, and, and, and embrace the sacred day and the sacred season of the Feast of the Incarnation. That's really cool. Until the middle of the second century, um, Easter had been the one big feast day that the church celebrated really widely. And over time, they developed this season of fasting. It, in, it was in parallel to the 40 days of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And they did this in solidarity with people who were preparing to be baptized. And so the church all together had this season of fasting leading up to the great feast day of the resurrection. And, and the church decided this is a really cool rhythm, that whenever you have a season of, of fasting, it should be followed by a season of feasting. And they already had now by the middle of the second century this fast time, or this feasting time of Christmas, and so they put a season of preparation ahead of it, a fasting season, which became known as Advent. It developed and it matured over time. By the middle of the fourth century, it was the four Sundays that led to Christmas. Uh, some of you are new to the whole idea of the church calendar, and you may not even know what I'm saying when I mean the church calendar. You mean like, like when is the next Welcome to Cornerstone dinner? Is that what you mean? I don't mean that. The, the church calendar or the liturgical calendar is this practice that's not strictly found in the pages of the Bible, but it follows, it's inspired by the practice of the Old Testament where God instructed His people to annually observe these feast days, these festivals, these times of, of solemn repentance as a way of retelling their own story, as a way of living into again and again the moments in history that established them as a people to keep God's Word on their hearts and keep God's love fresh in their hearts as well. So many Christians have found over time that living according to certain rhythms uh, is really, really helpful, rhythms of emphasis provided by the church calendar. You've got Advent, which is the beginning of the Christian year. You've got Christmas, which is 12 days. You have the season of Epiphany. You've got Lent, beginning with Ash Wednesday. You've got Holy Week. You've got Easter. It leads to, you know, Ascension and Pentecost and Trinity. And then you have just kind of the rest of the year living in light of all that's been revealed. 
Many Christians have found that, that paying attention to these rhythms have actually been, it's helpful. It's almost like a biblical or a theological food pyramid as a way of staying balanced in your diet, balanced in your practices over, year, over the year. And in the same way that we shouldn't just eat one food group, we shouldn't Lent all year long. And we shouldn't Advent all year long. We need to feast. We need Epiphany. We need Easter. We need Ascension. We need to feast and we need to fast. And the church calendar observed year over year keeps us immersed in the story of God. It exposes us to the breadth of Christian practice. In this season of Advent, there are a handful of, of texts that are really familiar that we go back to that are eschatological in nature, that are like longing for last things, longing for God to come and make all things right. And Psalm 80 is one of those passages that reflects the yearning nature of this season of Advent. As Lane read for us, the chief complaint of the psalmist in Psalm 80 is that the light of God's face no longer shines on His people. Some of you know what it's like to walk through a really dry season in your life with God, or on the other side of deep disappointment where you'd been crying out to God to intervene in your life in some great way, and He didn't do it in the way that you're asking. You felt like perhaps the, the, the light of God's face no longer shines on you. The, image, the imagery of God's face shining on a person connotes nearness and favor. It's explicitly an image of salvation. Of verse 3, the psalmist prays, Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, and if you do, we will be saved. You'll intervene on our behalf. We're going to be okay if your face is shining on us. Some of you may associate this, this language of God's face shining on you with the benediction that I give at the end of every service. This comes from Numbers chapter 6, when God was instructing the priests of Israel how to bless the people, that they should bless the people, and how to bless the people. It, it should center on God's face shining on the people. Numbers 6, 22, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, the priest, and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. But instead of feeling the nearness of God and the favor of God, the people lament, how long, Lord God Almighty, Will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? My 10-year-old son Sam and I drove here early this morning just to get ready, and I always bring a big kid with me. It was super foggy at like 7 and 8 o'clock. And Sam said, Dad, how long is it going to be like this? And it's like, yes, that's it. How long is the world going to be like this? How long is one of the chief, like the most commonly repeated prayers in the Bible? How long will it be until you uh, fulfill your promises, God? How long will it be until you intervene on my behalf? How long will I be have to half wonder, half believe that all of this is true until my faith is finally made sight? The, the, the people in the Psalms here are asking God to be near them and to help them, but it feels like He's putting them off. And this is the idea of his anger smoldering against them. It, the people are feeling ignored by God. 
It feels like he's in a bad mood toward them, that his face is not shining, his face is perhaps turned away from them, and they're saying, how long is this going to be the case? Now, I confess that I am, for myself, not super comfortable confessing disappointment or frustration to God like this. I'm comfortable with you doing it. I've taught before on the Psalms how the Psalms are able to like give voice to our anger with God. The Psalms give us a structure, a format for naming, even in the context of belief, our disbelief, our reticence to trust that God is going to work all things out. The Psalms give us appropriate outlets for inappropriate desires. Uh, you can think of those Psalms where David prays, you know, Lord, smash, you know, my enemies against a rock. You're like, is that, that's in the Bible, is that okay? But God gives space to process. God's, God's ear can handle such things. I'm okay with it being in the Bible. I'm fine with you doing it. I'm not super okay with it myself. And I think it's my own discomfort with what you might categorize as just negative feelings, sadness or anger. I get a little bit uncomfortable with these things when they're in myself. And I'm learning two things that are not super deep. Some of you are like, well, yeah, but I'm a little slow on the uptake. One of those is that our feelings are like a game of whack-a-mole. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, if you repress one, it's just going to pop up somewhere else. If you like, it's, or it's like the old like Donald Duck you know, cartoons where there's a hole in the boat and they stick a finger in the hole and then it pops out somewhere else. And, you know, this is what our feelings are like. That at one time or another, we're going to have to deal with them. The thing that happened when you're 12, when you're 14, 15, 16, 25, 45, that you've repressed, it's going to come up again at some point. It often slips out sideways. Our feelings have to be dealt with one way or another. The other thing that I'm learning, and some of you will have heard this, especially through the works of Brene Brown, is that we can't selectively mute or numb, or deaden our feelings. We can't just say, sadness, I'm going to be done with that one, and it have no effect on our ability to access other emotions. It turns out in trying to mute, or deaden, or numb ourselves to one particular category of feelings, we actually limit our ability to access other feelings. So by trying, by avoiding, for, for me at times, in, in my own life with God, avoiding naming sadness or grief or frustration or impatience, I'm also limiting my ability to access feelings of true and deep joy and excitement and hope and anticipation. In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion, I'm a, I'm a fan of Tolkien if you've never heard that before. Um, in Tolkien's The Silmarillion, he introduces this whole pantheon of gods that have created the, this world of his. The, these gods are known as the Valar. I'm mentioning the Valar right now in a sermon. <laughs> and the Valar collectively created each of the elements of the world that would become home for the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and all of those things. And numerous of the Valar correspond with the Greco-Roman gods. So you have the equivalent of many of the ones that you would have heard in the stories with one notable exception that in Tolkien's world, he has a god that goes by the name of Nienna, or a Vela that goes by the name of Nienna. And Tolkien, as a child, lost his dad, and then he lost his mom. And along with his brother, he experienced a lot of years of 
of loneliness and grief, and they lived with a priest, and they, they knew what it was like to feel all alone. And so Tolkien, in writing this, this Vela of Nienna, it gave her a certain thing that she was responsible for in the world, and it was grief and weeping. And Tolkien wrote, Nienna dwells alone. She's acquainted with grief, and she mourns for every wound that their, that their world has suffered in the marring of the enemy. So in every way that their world has slipped from its ideal, instilled in creation by its good creator, the, the ultimate God, Nienna mourns for those places in which the world has slipped. But she does not weep for herself. And those who hearken to her learn pity and endurance and hope. All those who wait cry to her, for she brings strength to the spirit, and she turns sorrow into wisdom. In Tolkien's world, Nienna's tears water the earth and give birth to great trees. Despite my discomfort at times, and perhaps your discomfort at times, it is good and it is right for us to weep holy tears when we rightly see and perceive that God's world has slipped from its pre-creational intent. It's okay to, and it's right to grieve. We join with the grief of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, who, knowing he would raise him from the dead, not only now at his tomb, but in the great resurrection that is to come, still wept with Mary and Martha. It's good, and it's right to weep when things go wrong. When our relationships turn sour, or when God feels distant, when the people that we love are sick or we experience loss, when wars rage on, when the vulnerable suffer, and even when we see our own depravity and we wish we could be something more or someone more, it's good and it's right to weep. There can be a holiness to our weeping. The greater concern is when we stop feeling, we stop weeping, we stop caring. When we grow so accustomed to the darkness that we begin to forget that there is a light that there is a right, that there is a true and a good and a noble and a beautiful. And in light of the holiness of our tears, we think about the strange mercy of God expressed through the psalmist in Psalm 137, or Psalm 80 here. It says, you have fed us with the bread of tears. You have made us drink tears by the bowlful. The bread of tears that's used here was a juxtaposition with uh, an image that they would have all known, which was the bread of the presence. That in the tabernacle or in the temple, there was perpetually to be the bread of the presence on the altar that signified God's favor and His provision toward His people. The bread of the presence was also known as the bread of the face, and it was a reminder that God was the source of Israel's life and nourishment. That to see the face of God, to experience the favor of God and the nearness of God was like oxygen to them, food to them, life to them. And what the tears could teach them was that there was a reason that things feel so wrong and so distant. And the roots of that realization of what has gotten us here could lead the people to wisdom. There's tearful imagery in Psalm 137. 
says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, we remembered our home. These are exiles far from home remembering their land. There on the poplars in exile, we hung our harps. Like they gave up music. There's no more. What are we even going to sing about? For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? The psalmist writes, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. God had warned his people for so long through the prophets, repent, repent, repent. If you don't repent, if you don't return to the covenant, you're going to face the consequences. And the consequences for them, first for the northern tribes of Israel, uh, meant exile, meant, meant being destroyed by the Assyrians. And then later for the southern tribes of Judah, it meant exile at the hand of the Babylonians. Their land had been conquered, their people had been exiled, and now by the waters of a strange land they are weeping. And the tears there by the river in Babylon uh, made tender their stony hearts and it produced repentance. We have in Nehemiah chapter 1 the story of one such person who had been exiled uh, for whom the, the tears of his heart tenderized him. When Nehemiah learned that the city had been destroyed, he says, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and listened to the prayer that tears produced. I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night the people of Israel, your servants, and I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, if you obey my commands, then even if your exiled people Or at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The tears produced repentance in Nehemiah. In Advent, we actually welcome the tears and all the things that they can teach us. Advent is not merely, you know, pre-Christmas countdown. Advent is this, this unique season of of repentance and also of embracing this theme of royalty, that God our King is coming to to judge and renew the earth. So in Advent, we welcome the tears. We permit our hearts to see and hear and absorb the reality that God's world is not now as it should be, and it's not as it one day will be. In these weeks of Advent, we read from the prophets, like we read from Isaiah 64 earlier, the prophets who long for the day when God would rend the heavens and come down, when God would fulfill His promises to send His anointed one to deliver His people. 
And so in Advent, we imaginatively enter into the fears and the desires and the longings of the people of Israel as they were waiting for the first Advent of God's Messiah to come. We also focus on His second Advent, His second coming to judge the living and the dead, to bring resurrection and renewal, to set the world to rights. Really importantly, Revelation 21 promises that when, when Christ returns, that He will wipe away the tears from every eye. And all who have drunk our tears by the bowlful, He'll wipe the tears away from our eyes. In view of that reality in the season of Advent, we repent and we examine our own hearts and homes. But we also in this season consider a third Advent, a third coming of Christ that He comes to His people uh, not only in His incarnation, He not only will come to us at the end of the ages, but He comes to His people now through word and through sacrament and through the Spirit. And so in this season of repentance, it's pretty customary for folks to give special attention to reading the Scriptures. Maybe you picked up a Bible reading plan to meditate on God's Word. We also eagerly desire, we're not only open to, but we eagerly desire the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to to give us fruits, to give us gifts, to encourage us, to equip us to wait patiently for the day of the Lord. We also, with heightened anticipation and a greater awareness of our need, come to the table to receive the bread of the presence, or the bread of the face, the face of Him who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever receives from me will never grow thirsty. I encourage you to open up your mind and to open up your heart and to invite the Spirit of God who knows the heart of God to search us inside and out and produce holy tears for our good. They may water the soil of our hearts to put out a fruit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. I'm going to share part of a prayer from Every Moment Holy, Volume 1. There's so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. So is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything, and then again, it might be everything. And yet there's somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness like a tiny flame when we're told that Jesus also wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, Lord, heaved with the grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your own sadness over Lazarus, In your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. The Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession? 
then let our hearts anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O Lord, if it please you when your children weep and don't know why, yet use our tears to baptize what you love. Lord, as we enter the season, we ask you to draw near to us and cause the light of your face to shine on us. I pray that you would give us the gift of holy tears to come to grips with and to name and to grieve our world as it is, but to grieve in hope of the resurrection that is to come, the renewal and restoration that is to come when Christ returns. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come in your incarnation. We thank you for the hope and the promise that you will come again. And I pray that you will come and be among your people even today as we come to the table. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. In his name we pray, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.